0: Hello, this is Daniil Hartman and Yossi Klein-Halevi from the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. And this is the Hartman Institute's podcast, For Heaven's Sake, the special edition, Israel at War. And today is day 26. And today, our theme is the sword of Damocles, the threat that hovers above us. Because that's really what most of us are feeling right now. There was a threat, or rather the actualized danger, the horror of day one. There was the air campaigns. And then we moved into Gaza. And for the first few days, it was okay. And now, as the deaths begin to mount, and as all of us know too many people directly or are connected to too many people who have children and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters. That sword, the awareness that death is around the corner and the price of this campaign is in everybody's mind. It's not that as Israelis, we don't have the will to go into Gaza, as Yossi has been speaking. And, and as the deep, in many ways, new existential reality that was created by the massacre is a sense of, in we have no choice. But that no choice is now meeting a price. And you just talk to people. And everybody's talking about it. I don't know about you, Yossi. I felt it very powerfully yesterday. When the army spokesman said, there are heavy battles, severe battles uh, being waged in Gaza. Now, we Israelis, we already know that there are codes. And they never announce casualties until every family is notified. But we know there's a code. And like there was a collective holding of breath. And then it got even worse when he said, and there will be a price. And then the clock is ticking. What's going to be the number? And then by the evening, it was two, but we knew that it wasn't going to be two. And by this morning, it's another 10, 12 people in that one battle. And, um, you know, you're just waiting to hear who. Who, who, who do we know? And just two days ago, a beloved teacher in our school, Yunon Fleischman, a beautiful soul was killed in the northern border. And there's a sense of inevitability. We are vulnerable, our children, our families. And I sense that in a certain way, we have shifted from the horrors of October 7th. Not that we forgot them, we're never going to forget them. October 7th is a day in Jewish history which we're going to remember and mourn. But existentially, something else is now part of the Israeli consciousness. It's not just the mourning, it's not just the conviction, that we cannot allow Hamas to be there. We just can't. We can't imagine going back to life with a evil force, willing and capable of killing indiscriminately. That's still there. But if you want to understand what's in Israel today, there's the price, the conversation. The minute I saw it in the hallways here in the Machon, the minute the spokesperson gave his announcement, people were on the phone. Everybody was calling, because everybody in Israel knows one degree of separation from the chief of staff, and uh, everybody was calling. And you saw it. So today, this um, this sword of Damocles is defining, I believe, Israel. And how we deal with it is going to be one of our great challenges because for, in many ways, since the Second Intifada, more soldiers were killed by suicide than from terror. And our children were safe. And despite all the four operations in Gaza, the numbers, for our perspective, it was part of our myth of what we could handle. And now there's another layer, and we have to talk about that layer. It's a sad layer. It's a heavy layer. It's a terrifying layer. One of my workers in the Mahon was just screaming, literally, shouting in the hallway, literally. Can't do anything, she was saying. My husband, who's in the police, he's 16 hours a day in in Judea and Samaria, and my son is now in Givati, and I can't do it. She was literally screaming. Now, most of us control ourselves more, but I don't know if it's better. But this is the next stage, and this is Gaza. In Gaza, it's not clean, not on the Palestinian side, and certainly not on Israeli soldier side. And on day 26 and 27 and 28, this is what I'm feeling. Yossi? How does this sort of Damocles meet you? Well, exactly what you were
1: saying is that as soon as the names were released, you go over them. You see, do you know, are any of them familiar? You think of not only people close to you, you think of people who you know almost incidentally. I have a, an acquaintance who was telling me the other day that he has four sons at the front. And then he says to me, what are the odds? And so I was looking, you know, for his name. And it's hard for outsiders to understand the intimacy of what it means for a country at war. You know, what is making this war so unbearable is that there are layers of trauma that we're carrying simultaneously. I'm just beginning, I don't know about you, Daniil, I'm just beginning to process October 7th. And I think it's going to take me a very long time. I've been avoiding the atrocity clips. As it is, I have trouble sleeping. I don't need it. Today, I happened to see an interview with a first responder. And she tells this story, finding a little girl, maybe seven years old, whose arm was cut off. And this girl is just sitting there in shock. And then she died. And just one, one little story. And think of the multitude of stories that are reverberating right now in the Israeli psyche. And so you're right. You're right. Ordinarily, there is no greater emotional vulnerable point for Israelis, than the loss of our soldiers. And you know, it's so interesting. When we lose a soldier, we turn them back into a child. They're our children. They're not, he died as a soldier, but he's mourned as a child, as a son, as a a friend. And under ordinary circumstances, I would say that this was a trauma that we would be hard-pressed to endure. But October 7th is hovering like a kind of psychological sort of Damocles. And it hovers in the sense that we know, as you said earlier, if we don't bring Hamas down, October 7th remains the most indelible experience. And the message that we communicate to the Middle East is we don't have it in us anymore to survive in this region. And I think that that's very deep right now in the Israeli psyche. You know, 70% of Israelis in, in a recent poll said that they want the army to fight until victory. Now, everyone knows what that means. We all understand the price. And so I think that this time it's different. It's not that the morning isn't going to be the same but to start a war the way we have, with a thousand civilian mutilations, that's going to change the way we relate to everything. And I I sense it's going to expand our capacity for the kinds of losses that in the past would be intolerable.
0: I'm not as sure, Yossi. I hear you. And I... I hear the people that you're giving voice to, because I hear those voices too. I just think this is going to be a really hard war for us. It's a hard war for Jews around the world, and we're for very, very different reasons. And we're going to have to talk also in depth why it's so hard for world Jewry too, and what they're experiencing, and the traumas that they're experiencing. But one of the great successes, and I think you mentioned this in one of our previous sessions, Israel is a country where feelings and hope are much more a part of our culture. Chief of Staff Rafael Eitan, who was the chief of staff during the war in Lebanon, first war in Lebanon, used to famously say that we cannot educate our children to hope for peace (laughs) because it weakens us. We have to train them that you will always live by your sword. That was his Torah. And I remember I remember my father's disdain. I remember him saying, that's not who we are. I I was too young uh, to have an opinion. (laughs) I was old enough to go to war, but too young to have an opinion, (laughs) um, which is an interesting distinction, by the way. Kind of sums Um,
1: up the history of war.
0: (laughs) The history of war. But Israelis, it's not the hope for peace that's changed us. Second Intifada buried that. It was... Maybe the taking for granted of normalcy, the last 15 years have been glorious, relatively painless in comparing to different moments in Israel and the Jewish people's history. Well, put
1: it this way, in any other society, the last 15 years would have been considered traumatic. Traumatic, but, but for relative Jews and Israelis. To our like we got, like we handled uh, this. It's been this, a know? golden era.
0: <laughs> yeah, we built, uh, um, unless you're in Shdeirot uh, and the settlements around Gaza, but all the rest of us, you know, we had a minute and a half to get to a bomb shelter. That's a good life, you know. It's uh, <laughs> like talk. anyway, enough with the black humor, but we've become softer. And I love that softness that we've experienced. There's a softness, there's aspirations, there's materialism, beautiful material. I don't mean negative, beautiful materialism. There's a positivity about life. We're a happy people. We were a happy people. We I, were a happy people. I, I
1: wouldn't want to look at next year's UN Happiness Index and
0: see where we're positioned. And uh, it's interesting. I did see a poll. You know, we're all quoting polls. And every one of us sees the poll, which has a statistic That we're interested. There was once a pollster who told me, "What's the results that you're looking for? (laughs) You know, tell me so that I could produce them for you." But where Israelis were more optimistic about the future after the war in Gaza started. um, How do you understand that? That's compared to last year and all of that. But we're not going to go into that today. It's an interesting Um, question. Actually, it really
1: does reflect. It says something very profound about the it, national mood. It says mode. something There
0: was a sense of coming together.
1: Coming together, we we can deal with an external threat more easily than Much, internal yeah. disintegration. You yeah, know, we, did, we
0: didn't know what to do. But right now, for Israelis, this is going to be a very hard war. Very, um, very it's going to be hard because I think we're not as alienated from our feelings. We're not as alienated from hope. We actually expect that we could live normal lives. And the death tolls are going to come. And I've been hearing from people this unresolved angst. And listen, I hear it from the families of the people who were kidnapped in Gaza. We're just not prepared for it. And I think part of what we're going to have to do is find that strength. Because there is no Entebbe in Gaza. There is no in and out. And this is going to be months, but 12, 14 children a day. This is the challenge of Israel right now. And it's in many ways, it's a challenge that we thought we were free from. When we grew up here, and I remember this, but when we grew up here in Israel, but certainly in the early years of the foundation of the country, there was a motto of It is good to be able to die for the sake of our country. And part of it was that it was an honor to be able to die defending yourself rather than having to die going as powerless sheep into the slaughter. That was what it meant. But we grew up in an era where that ideology was explicitly rejected. And I remember
1: when sometime uh, shortly after I moved to Israel in the early 80s, that slogan was replaced with a new one, Tov Lechiot that' saying it's good to live for your country, and that defined the ethos.
0: That de- so, how does a people who really believes that it is great to live for your country, and that Zionism is not expressed through sacrifice, but it's expressed through creativity, through imagination, through hope, through building, all that positive energy? How do we re-embrace this story? It's going to be a very hard war on this level.
1: I think the question, Daniel, is balance. On the one hand, we are going to be severely tested again, emotionally, psychologically. On the other hand, what October 7th did for us was remind Israelis what they're up against. And you feel that when you speak to kids in the army, when you see them interviewed, there's this sense of, if we're talking about old slogans— there's no alternative. And that was a slogan that was really retired from the early years and was one of those kind of archaic ideas. And many of us really began to think, well, maybe there is an alternative. And uh, certainly in the last couple of years where we've seen whole parts of the Middle East opening to Israel and the tantalizing prospect of Saudi Arabia, we went from that, from the vision the Arab-Israeli conflict is ending. As soon as Saudi Arabia makes peace with us, that's it. They fall like dominoes. And now suddenly we're back in uh, 1960, and it's En Brera time. And so when you're fighting a war, this kind of a war, you want that mindset for your soldiers.
0: Of En Brera, of, there of is Ein no choice.
1: There's no choice. We have to keep going. And I sense that spirit of Einbrerah very strong among
0: Israelis. I sense it very strong amongst our soldiers. I don't sense it as strong. And in many ways, it shouldn't be as strong amongst the home front. Listen, I remember when I, I went to war, uh, you know, there was fear, but I didn't To tell you that I fully understood what it meant. I didn't. You know, you went, and I remember the first time being fired upon. The first time it dawned on me. I was a tank commander. I was in a tank column going in Lebanon. And it's this absolutely gorgeous terrain, gorgeous terrain. Like you would go on vacation, and you're driving, and then all of a sudden you see these beautiful mushroom clouds in the mountains right next to you. And you point, oh, they're beautiful. And then you realize someone's firing on you artillery shells, and then, like, the but I compare that together with almost dying and having my tank blow up. And none of that was even close to the terror that I experienced when my son had to go into Gaza in one of the previous Israeli operations. And now the enormity of this battle and what's standing before us is I think our soldiers are, are, are inspired by October 7th. I think our society knows that October 7th creates for us an obligation. But I think the fact that we're a more hopeful, maybe normal people is going to make this hard. And, um, and it's just, that's where we are right now. That
1: tension is going to play out in another way as well, which is over the fate of the hostages. Because when you hear people talking, they say two opposite things. They say, on the one hand, we have to bring Hamas down no matter what. And on the other hand, we have to do everything we can to get the hostages out. And those two goals are not necessarily
0: compatible It's a really interesting point, Yossi, because I think it reflects the ambivalence in Israeli society. At another era, we would have said, no, we can't do them both, and we would have chosen. But now we want both. And so we create these little myths, yes, that the purpose, you could even see it. Yes, we're doing this to help increase the leverage for the hostage release. But I don't want to talk. I, I believe I can say certain things, so I don't want to say them. But I think your observation is very powerful. The two statements being said together is just a reflection of the weight of what we're going to be experiencing right now. I should have warned our audience that it's a day after the first massive soldier casualties is shaping us and as we look forward. And it's going to be a hard time. And we're all in a, in a weighty waiting mode <laughs> as we're waiting for... A sword that we hope won't fall. But as we know, it will. And, and at the end, end But I don't know. It's a tough one. This is, for heaven's sake, Israel at War, Day 26. For more ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute about what's unfolding right now, sign up for our newsletter in the show notes or visit shalomhartman.org forward slash Israel at war. May we all be well.